want to remind you about some of the, 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 in sense, the bigger picture behind the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount starts uh, with these Beatitudes, uh, where Jesus does something completely astonishing. He gets some signposts, and he sort of bangs them in the ground, and he says, if you want to find blessing, then this is where blessing is to be found. And all the places he points to are places that we would not expect to find blessing. So there is blessing in recognizing and feeling deep in yourself that you are poor in spirit, that you need more of God. There is brokenness and tenderness within you. There is blessing in mourning, not just mourning for those that we love, but mourning for our world, the things that are going wrong there. There is blessing in the path of being a peacemaker, someone who stands firm and strong and tall for peace. And these, these Beatitudes confound every culture and every society because they point at places that none of us think blessing exists. And from there, then Jesus goes on uh, to talk about what it means to be faithful, what it means to live by God's word. And it's unbelievably challenging and audacious and wonderful as he, in a sense, looks across human community and human society and says, faithful living, for instance, means a resolution to love and to forgive those who persecute us, those who are unkind and unjust to us. Uh, faithful living means, uh, in a sense, being in control of who we look at and how we look at them. It means being faithful in our marriages. It means living lives where we take God at his word. And then there's a pause. And Jesus gives three different components that you might call the engine room of the Christian character. So for those of us who, like me, are captivated by the Sermon on the Mount, and in a sense, find in the Sermon on the Mount enough material to spend the rest of our lives practicing and unpacking and making real. Jesus says there's an engine room where these things, these habits, these, these, these depths of character, where they are formed. There's a place where these happen. And the engine room is totally and utterly perplexing for the vast majority of those of us who are English Christians. Because we would, not, uh, we would not willingly or naturally point at any of them. The first one, perplexingly, is giving. If we want to live lives that are full of the character and the beauty of Jesus Christ, we will first learn to give generously of our resources. The second one we sort of get, but the second one is not coming to church. The second one is finding times of quiet prayer where it's just us and God. No one's watching. No one's measuring our performance. It's just us and God. The third one is almost entirely perplexing to English Christians because it's fasting. And this morning we're going to look in a little bit more detail about what Jesus teaches about fasting. It's important to notice that he said, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. 
So Jesus is assuming that we do these things and is, in a sense, giving us some pointers. Here's a pitfall. Here's how to do it well uh, for each of those three. In a sense, he is commending them. He's not actually commanding them, but he's commending them as things that will uh, power our Christian lives. And Jesus says, in each of these three, giving, praying on our own, fasting, there will be the temptation to show off. In a sense, to do these things, uh, to gain recognition uh, from other people. And Jesus acknowledges that for each of those things, uh, there will be a kind of a feeling good about ourselves in doing those things publicly. But he says, there is a greater reward And my disciples, says says Jesus, will have their eyes on the greater reward. Then, in Jesus' culture, people would disfigure their faces, as Jesus describes, to show other people that they're fasting. So you'd you'd meet someone walking down the street, and they'd be looking a bit haggard and a bit miserable, and they might rub their tummy and go, Oh, I'm I'm so hungry. It's been days since I've eaten. And of course, what what they're actually communicating to you is, Hey, check out my amazing religiosity. Check me out. I am a person who really fasts for like a long time and look what it's done to me. So that's, that's the culture then. Uh, the culture now, we, we might brag about fasting potentially. Actually, if we're honest, very, very few English Christians ever fast. So it's not that we get to brag about it. We just don't do it. Jesus says there is a different, less showy way to do the three things that are the engine room of Christian character. To give, to pray quietly, and to fast. There's a less showy way to do it. It's it's primarily about realizing that in those three things, the engine room of Christian character, it's us and God. These things are private. They are underground. There's an audience of one, God. Nobody else matters. We immerse ourselves in the opportunity to meet with God our Father without the added confusion of other people to watch us, to belittle us, to judge us, or those we want to impress. And Jesus says there are great rewards in these three. So it made me think, why then do English Christians essentially not fast, or very few of us fast? I can come up with two reasons. The first one is, fasting is hard. It's hard. We live in a culture where many of us eat very regularly and very well. And it's hard even to give up one meal. We live in a fast food culture, but we also live in a, a, a culture of fast food spirituality. So we want spiritual disciplines and exercises that are going to have immediate results. Fasting is like the antithesis of that. No immediate results. No quick fix. Secondly, we do have a folk memory of times when the medieval church in Europe got this completely and utterly wrong. Uh, where, in a sense, fasting was forced on people with terrible results. And we say, well, we are free of all of that. We're not like the medieval church. We're not suspicious. We don't do stuff to show off or because we're told to. We do it because we want to. I've got two wonderful examples. In medieval times, here in this country, you weren't allowed to eat meat during Lent. Great news for fishermen, because basically, uh, the thing that most people lived on during Lent was salted fish. Uh, So all the coastal areas were delighted because they'd have to 
they have to import uh, lots of fish uh, from, uh, from them. And this salted fish uh, wasn't very nice particularly, but it was better than nothing, but it made you thirsty. The breweries come along and they say, hey, we know what cures thirst, and they produced lots and lots more beer during Lent because everyone was so thirsty because of the salted, salted fish. Then there was excessive drinking during Lent and many historians of the time tell the fact that during Lent uh, fighting and violence and excessive drinking all went up because people were fasting from meat. So you can sort of, you can get why now we think, well that is not what Jesus intended when he talked about fasting, that there would be fish and lots of excessive drinking. If any of you have been to Rouen, Rouen Cathedral in France, uh, it has two wonderful towers at the front. One of them, I think it's on the right-hand side as you're looking at it from the, from the west end, is called the Butter Tower. And the reason it's called the Butter Tower is because during Lent, during medieval times, you weren't allowed to eat butter. But the French church thought, hang on a minute, I I spot an excellent marketing opportunity. So they started to say to people, well, if you're so weak uh, that you have to eat butter during Lent, uh, you can pay for a special dispensation. And if you pay us a special dispensation, we will allow you, in God's eyes, to eat butter during Lent. And on the proceeds of that, they built this whopping great tower. You know, and, and again, you think, well, it's not surprising then that we're cross about this. And we think, well, that is not what Jesus intended. Uh, can we not do better? <clears throat> Let's see if we can. Fasting is commended in all parts of the Bible. Uh, let me read some of the people who we know fasted. Moses, David, Elijah, Esther, Daniel, Anna, who uh, greets Jesus, uh, baby Jesus in the temple, Paul and Barnabas, as, as part of their missionary strategy. And of course, uh, Jesus himself, we know, fasted uh, for sure for 40 days and nights at the start of his ministry. And we assume, uh, because he was a first century Jew, that uh, regular fasting was part of, of his own spiritual disciplines. Isaiah 58 is a key biblical text. In Isaiah 58, we, we hear that the Old Testament prophets recognize and know that fasting can be abused. That in a sense, it's a good spiritual practice, just like giving is, just like praying is, but it can be abused. And in Isaiah 58, we read this, on the day of your fasting, you exploit all your workers. On the day of your fasting, you strike each other with wicked fists. So there's already within the Old Testament an understanding that Fasting can just mask hypocrisy. And so Isaiah has a go at the people. He says, well, it's, it's no good you fasting and doing things that are outwardly for God when at the very same moment you are exploiting the poor and exploiting the people who are working for you. That's not what fasting is about. So there is already within the Old Testament an understanding that fasting in one sense can be neutral. You can do it well or you can do it badly. Fasting in the Bible is simply understood as not eating food for a certain period of time, for as little as one meal, sometimes longer. And it's important in our own context to distinguish fasting from two other things. Fasting is not dieting. 
Now, in our culture, we have recently, last five or ten years, uh, in a sense, discovered that intermittent fasting is a great way, in a sense, to live well and to lose weight. And it's interesting that some of the people who are writing about fasting in our culture are saying, hey, there's this thing called fasting. People used to do it back in the day. It, kind of, it really establishes healthy rhythms in our lives. Well, all of that is true, but in the Bible, fasting is not primarily for dietary reasons. It can have good effects from that, but we don't fast to diet. Secondly, fasting in the Bible is not political. Uh, so many of us, particularly those of us who are sort of maybe 35, 40 above, remember uh, fasting, uh, hunger strikes being used for political reasons. So people, uh, when they felt they had no, nothing else left to do, they would, in a sense, they would fast deliberately uh, to make a political point. Now, in the light of what Jesus says about secrecy and fasting, Christians would not understand fasting uh, politically. It's something that we do quietly. It's just us and God. It, it may well be that hunger strikes are a good thing to do, but they're not fasting in the biblical sense. Going without food for a certain amount of time helps to reveal what rules our life. Uh, we tend in our very well-fed culture to cover up pain and discomfort and longing. We cover those things up with food or sometimes with other good things but things that aren't God when we fast when we don't eat and since that all comes to the fore as our belly rumbles and we are desperate to fulfill that immediate need that we feel fasting also allows us to express our solidarity with the poor and with those who are vulnerable and it increases our gratitude for what we have. And fasting frees up time for us to be intentionally alone with God. And that's the key thing. It frees up time on, for our part and it gives a context for a different set of conversations with God. So when we fast, we get to talk to God, first of all, about our hungers. Now, as people who are created in the image of God, we have hunger, we have yearning, we have things that we long for, that we crave. And anyone who's read C.S. Lewis knows it and says that those things all point to a good creator God who's given us hunger as a sign that we need and should enjoy physical food. He's given us hunger for meaning, for love. He's given us uh, sexual hunger as a sign that that can and is fulfilled in marriage. But he's also given us a deeper hunger, a hunger that St. Augustine uh, qualifies as, as, that, as that hunger that can only be answered in him and through him. And so when we fast, we get to listen to the competing hungers that there are in our souls and in our bodies. And often those get lopsided. And if you look at the way that we live a week, we are answering some basic hungers and we are ignoring some much deeper and more important ones. Fasting frees up time also for us to talk to God about the things that we enjoy. And so there is thanksgiving in hunger. And so as we appreciate more fully what we haven't had for breakfast, or for lunch, 
so we can come to learn and appreciate more fully what we do enjoy, what God has given. So almost ironically, the experience of fasting frees up our gratitude and reminds us of the many good things that we do have. Fasting also allows us to contend with God about the unbearable injustice and waste and greed that so ruins our world. And of course, we as a culture and a community now have, a, have a, such a deep understanding of how injustice and greed have spoiled our planet and have spoiled our world. And so fasting allows us to contend with God about those things. And as, as our belly rumbles quietly, it's, that's such a powerful experience, isn't it? When you've missed, missed lunch like for like one hour, two hours, three hours. I mean, by four hours, we're nearly desperate. Such a powerful experience. And so we get to use that experience and say, well, look, here am I in Winchester, hungry, having missed food for a couple of hours. And then I put myself in so many different parts of the world where that is a daily reality for people who are starving. So fasting allows us, in a sense, to contend with God on this important issue of justice. And we believe, as Jesus' people, that we live in what he's described as an in-between time. Uh, ironically, Jesus' disciples in the gospel are criticized for not fasting. They seem to be having too much of a party, uh, and the religious people don't like it. And Jesus says, yes, it's absolutely right that they don't fast now that I'm with them. But then this is what he says. The time will come, this is in Matthew 9, 15, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. We believe this, that's our time. We're in this in-between time. Jesus has gone to be with the Father. Jesus will come again. We live in a now and a not yet of suffering and beauty, of violence and peace. And part of our expression that this is a time of waiting, that God's kingdom has not fully come. Part of that expression of the in-between times is that we fast, we pause, we stop, we remember. So, how could you make a start on fasting if it's never been part of the engine room of your Christian character? A few small points. Firstly, start small. Plan to miss one meal. That's the place that you need to start. You know, some, some, some old Christian books you read, you know, start with a three-day fast. No, no, that's going to that's gonna confound most of us, if we're honest, especially if you're, if you're working or at school. So, so don't start with three days. You know, and then sometimes, you know, you read books and you, you read about these old saints that fasted for 40 days. And you're thinking, well, it's humanly possible, but it's pretty much going to kill me. That's not where we start. Start with one meal or maybe two. Second thing, you will feel hungry, okay? You will feel hungry, don't cave in. Don't cave in, just keep going, it's worth it. Thirdly, be aware of what's going on in your body and in your spirit, because you'll see some nasty sides of yourself that you didn't know were there after a couple of hours having missed a meal. Now be aware of that, talk to God about what's going on, about how that is making you feel, what's going on in your spirit. Fourthly, find a quiet corner. 
There's no point in fasting if you don't do something good with the fasting. That's where Jesus is at. He says, you know, if you're going to fast, do it quietly. Don't show off about it. Don't let other people know that you're doing it. But in a sense, it frees up space. So if you miss a meal, find a quiet corner for five minutes, sit down, write out some prayers, talk to God, write prayers out to God, just spend time quietly praying about the things that God is putting on your heart. So the, importance, the important thing here is the conversation that, in a sense, comes out between you and God as you've set this time aside whilst you are still hungry. That's where the reward begins to come. The reward is not in other people thinking you're holy and thinking you're a step above them as a Christian. The reward comes in those conversations. Now, clearly, some of us here should not be missing even a meal uh, because there are things medically. We've just given birth or we have a particular condition, whatever it is, or we're young, very young. Fasting isn't for everybody, but many adults can, in a sense, include uh, regular fasting in part of their Christian discipleship. Let me end, though, with a thought. Uh, Maybe you can do Lent differently this year. I mean, Lent's gone crazy in our culture, right? We kind of, there's all these, you know, folk memories of all kinds of weird things, uh, things that we give up for Lent. Uh, A much better way and a much more biblical way of approaching and learning about fasting is not to say, I'm going to give up chocolate for Lent, but is to say, I will fast once a week during Lent. That is a much better way of doing this and beginning to learn at the value of fasting. So just as, as the culture starts to pepper us with decisions about what we're going to give up for Lent, maybe a better way of doing it is to say, I'm going to fast once a week. I'm going, to, I'm going to choose maybe a meal to miss. And I'm going to choose where I'm going to spend some quiet time, me and my father, in prayer together. Uh, now, I've got no idea how this is going to land with you because... As I said at the start, English Christians essentially don't fast. So it'll be really interesting to see whether we can take this up or whether the culture has squeezed us too hard. But I just want to remind you that Jesus says, if you want to grow in Christian character, then the three very surprising things that we should do are not come to church every week, but are to give our stuff away generously, to find daily times where it's just us and God, and to fast. Now, we've missed out fasting over all these years. It's not surprising that the engine isn't working properly. <laughs>